This is the Phelan & Myers 2 for 20 with the Willett Phelan Myers & Rotts Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130, Duluth, Georgia. Good morning. This is Scott Phelan of Willett, Phelan, Myers, and Rots, and we bring uh, to you our latest edition of Phelan and Myers 2 for 20. We've got two folks here with us, Lindsay Dendy of Dorsey Austin Realtors and Mark Pagamanakis of Goldwater Bank. We're going to talk about the state of the real estate market here in the city of Atlanta and also talk about this crazy mortgage market that we're experiencing. So, Lindsay, why don't we start with you? How long, now, how long have you been selling real estate in Atlanta? I've been selling real estate for over 20 years in Atlanta. Okay. I started my career with John Wheeland Homes, a builder around town, and then I went into general residential real estate. And so, so now are you doing commercial or residential or both? Or? Residential. Mainly residential? Mainly okay. residential. So what in the world is going on with this real estate market right now? I've never seen anything like it. I, I thought the 90s were crazy, and this is just unlike anything I've ever seen. I agree. And in 20 years, I have never seen the multiple offer situation that we're experiencing right now. We've had an amazing spring market, and it continues to be strong. Even as interest rates are heading upwards, it's still a very strong real estate market. Really? Despite the fact that I think, Mark, tell me, I mean, the 30-year the mortgage has gone from, what, high twos to mid sixes now? Is that right? That is roughly correct. Yeah, over the last year, we've seen an incredible increase in the rates, um, especially in the last 90, 120 days. It's been unpredictable. Um, it hasn't been a steady rise. It's uh, just there are certain isolated pockets of days where you can see the rate just, just jump. Um, and that is very odd, very unique situation. And so, Lindsay, you're saying that the real estate market, despite this jump in interest rates, is, is still going strong from what you've seen. I mean, are you seeing any slowdown in it necessarily? So we're seeing a little bit of a softening of the market, whereas in the past you may have seen crazy multiple offers. It's a little bit more manageable now, which is actually really good news for buyers. But the it, the the inventory is very low and there are a lot of buyers. So there's more buyers than there is inventory. And that is still the case. Yeah. So, so if I came to you, I want to sell my house, and it's, I don't know, $500,000 house as an example. So if I came to you, I mean, what is the process now? Because it seems like it's really hard to gauge a price. And even when you gauge a price in this example of $500,000, I mean, it could end up selling for, you know, five eighty, six hundred. So, I mean, how, how do you handle this? I mean, what is the process that you go through to determine what you think it'll sell for? And then do you go 10% higher than what you think? I mean, how how... How is so, it different now, for example, than it was five years ago? So my advice is still to price the home properly. Still get your house for sale in the same way that we always have. You need to put your best foot forward, replace the carpet, do the paint, get the landscaping in order, present your home in the best light possible. Price it reasonably within the comparables. Don't price outside of the comparables because you're going to price yourself out of the market. And there's no such thing right now, in my opinion, as pricing a home too low. Because if you go in, let's say all the comps are leading you to 450, you say, okay, I'm going to be at 450. If the market dictates, hey, that's amazing, you'll get multiple offers and that price will get driven up more so than if you said, oh, okay, the last sale was 450, I'm going to go in at 500 and just try and push the market. It makes more sense 
to price it reasonably within the comps and then drive it up with multiple offers. In 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 how often do offers come in above the asking price? I mean, is that I mean, if you price it correctly, I mean, are they always coming in above asking or, or? I would say as always, it depends on location, the product, the price range, the lower price points, they are still getting multiple offers. And then what about appraisals? Because if, if you have a house price that, and again, in this example at 500 and, and you get an offer at six, but there's no comps to support that 600, how do you account for that in a contract? So what a lot of buyers are doing right now is putting in what's called an appraisal gap. And the appraisal gap is something that the buyer will cover the difference between, let's say, if let's say an example is that the home appraises for 450 and they're under contract for 500. The appraisal gap that they can now add in will add a specific number that they determine up to their contract price. And so they would pay, in that example, they would say, okay, I'll pay $25,000 more than the appraised value. So they would then be at a 475 price point in that example. But I will tell you, it is very important as a realtor to me on the listing side to actually meet the appraiser at the property to go over my reasoning of why we priced it the way that we did to also say listen I had 10 offers here obviously this is the right price point for this home and I think appraisers are actually very receptive to that as we are in such an increasing market. Now Mark I, I thought though that after 0809 that the appraisals became a little bit different where you could have no contact with an appraiser is, am I am I wrong about that? Technically, yes. I mean, there was a, a major change in the mortgage landscape in 2008, 2009. A lot changed, a lot of process changed, one of which was how appraisals were ordered, how they were processed, and the kind of influence that uh, could be exerted on an appraiser. Um, you know, the, the intention of the law uh, and the changes, the reforms, was to keep appraisers from being talked into an artificial value because they were... Uh, you know, they received a lot of business from a particular lender. Mm -hmm. uh, so now there's an intermediary company that operates between the lender and any appraiser. Uh, but I don't think there's anything wrong with, um, you know, having an honest discussion with an appraiser over, uh, you know, just the, the data that's available. Um, I, I don't think that that's an influence. Uh, again, as, as a lender, you know, we do not communicate with the appraiser directly. Uh, everything that we provide in terms of our, our request or, you know, any of the information that we want to challenge is all done through that intermediary. So there's always a third party involved to keep things as objective as possible. I got you. And as a listing agent, you do have to meet with the appraiser to allow them to have access to the house. And so you do have an opportunity to have a conversation. And in my experience, they've been receptive to, hey, this is how we came up with the price. Or possibly this is a home that sold that is not in FMLS. Yeah. Yeah. So are you seeing what percentage of the homes right now are you seeing uh, uh, cash offers for versus uh, financing? So it's interesting because what I'm seeing more than cash offers are homes that are that do not have a financing contingency. And that is why it's so important to work with your lender and be completely approved going into the offer so that you can you don't have to put in a financing contingency. And if you do have an appraisal contingency, it's a very short one. And that is the key 
key to working very closely with your lender. So that is what I'm seeing more than cash offers. Now, if you have a cash offer, what I'm actually seeing is that they have the cash that they can show, but they have also um, included in that that they have the right to get a loan. And you see that much more than just the all cash offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I assume you agree with that, Mark. I agree. You're my favorite real estate agent today. <laughs> Yay! Oh, thank <laughs> um, you. Yeah, it should be noted. There are lenders out there that can fully underwrite the borrower before a property is identified. Not all lenders do this. Um, my uh, company does. Um, but we can take the time on the front end to fully vet out the income, the assets, any of the unforeseens that might be involved in the transaction. And we can clean all of that up so that we are in a position when an offer is made that all we're really looking for is property related items, the appraisal, the title work and the insurance. That makes for a much more condensed process after you go into contract instead of waiting you know, 21 to 30 days to go to closing, you know, we could pull that off in roughly 10 days. Um, so, you know, with, with every loan transaction, there is a process, uh, but the timing of when we do what uh, really does make a difference. So, um, and so, and so one thing that I've heard after, you know, the, the real estate mess of 2008, 2009 is that getting a loan, which frankly is a good thing because in 08, 09, or I guess really prior to 08, 09, you know, they were giving loans to anybody, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, stated income loans, which stunned me when somebody explained them to me, which is basically tell me what your income and your net worth is and we'll run your credit and we'll loan you money based on that. And I asked the mortgage guy, I said, Are you guys actually loan money like this? He said, yeah, it's our most popular product. So it's not surprising that the market crashed the way it did in 08 or 09. But I hear, not all the time, but from time to time from clients that are going through the mortgage process, they say, this is a lot more difficult than it was 15 years ago. Can you just kind of explain what some of those differences are sure. and, and what the impetus for them was? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, th- it is difficult to go through the mortgage process if you're unprepared. Um, but um, I think, you know, victory favors the prepared. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely easier uh prior to the Great Recession to get a mortgage. Uh, There were a lot of products out there that were driven by things that lacked fundamentals. Uh, You know, being credit worthy, uh, you know, having sufficient income, being able to validate the legitimacy of the information that you were provided. A lot of those things were absent. Um, And again, I think that was just, uh, it was a different time. You know, the the market was feeding on that frenzy. Um, That was, definitely you know a mortgage related crisis uh, yeah since then you know the reforms that have been put in place uh, you know yeah they're they're burdensome um, and they've created a lot of additional cost uh, but you have to sort of pick you know the the challenges that you want to deal with um, I, I don't think that there's anything that is um, you know, unreasonable about asking a borrower to document their income or their assets you know are you good for it you know you say you make X a month we, we need to see it. Um, that is the difference between stating your income and documenting your income. And sometimes, especially with self-employed borrowers, high net worth individuals, um, it's difficult to pull together a comprehensive application, which is what's required of us. Um, because there's, there, just, there may be multiple income sources. There may be income sources that are difficult to document. There may be legitimate income sources that practically are available to pay bills, but the guidelines, the regulations don't allow us to consider that income as part of the transaction. So even though there are real dollars coming in, we can't put it on the application. So, um, you know, a lot of that, again, you know, I'll go back to my previous point, a lot of that, uh, you know, those are things that we can 
address early in the process. You know, um, our goal is to put the buyer in the best possible position. Um, a large part of that is engaging with the lender prior to the contract. Uh, you know, getting a pre-qualification is the first step, but most people stop at the pre-qualification. The pre-qualification is just a verbal application that the lender processes through a piece of software that says, you know, this is potentially a good transaction. Um, that's a good first step. But getting pre-approved, getting a credit decision, having an underwriting decision, a credit offer letter in place from a lender that says, yes, we will lend on this, uh, provided the property comes in as expected, that's much more powerful. Um, that is something that is more attractive to a seller. Uh, that is something that, you know, again, the seller in most cases doesn't care whether you finance the property or not. They just want to go to closing on the date of the contract. Uh, so, you know, putting yourself in a position where you've taken m as much of the unknown out of the process as possible is key, especially in this market where, you know, it is a seller's market. Yeah. And, and so when did interest rates start moving up? On, on, on mortgages at the beginning of the year it seems like roughly it was the beginning of the year okay yeah so this time last year 30-year mortgage is high twos well um, we had started to see a little bit of an increase um, about a year ago we were still in very attractive rate territory you know generally speaking over the last decade rates have been in the two and a half to four and a half percent range and that's relatively stable I mean we were in the mid to high threes about a year ago um, but that wasn't you know th that that had been fairly stable territory those were you know rates that were in line with what had occurred two years ago um, you know so we were we were in kind of you know a boring rate movement um, about the beginning of this year we started to see some uncertainty again you know a lot of this is not just isolated to one thing but a large part of what was making this happen was uh, you know the Federal Reserve moving from you know a quantitative easing standpoint to quantitative tightening and again I'm not an economist but basically the Federal Reserve communicated that it was going to stop buying mortgage-backed securities well because mortgage-backed securities still need to be bought by somewhere. They need to be bought by an investor, and that investor was by and large the Federal Reserve for a very long time. Um, other investors out there, such as you know, uh, insurance companies or REITs or you know, other institutional investors, were looking for a higher return on their investment. The Federal Reserve did not have necessarily a return in mind when it was buying mortgage-backed securities. It was doing it more for you know, economic reasons. Um, the alternative buyers of mortgage-backed securities of MBS, um, they were looking for an investment return. So that naturally caused rates to increase. Again, nothing happens in a vacuum. That wasn't the only reason, but um, I think that was a large contributor to why rates have increased uh, to where they are today. So a 30-year mortgage today approximately is what? High fives, mid sixes. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. What a move. Yeah. yeah, yeah. there's a common misconception that there's just one rate. And there isn't one rate. There's a, a range of rates that are applicable depending on credit score, depending on your debt-to-income ratio, the type of property you're buying, um, whether you're buying it for investment purposes or second home or primary residence. Uh, so, you know, rates will vary depending on all of those factors. There are adjustments uh, to accommodate the risk and all of that. Uh, but, yeah, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, we started quoting rates in the sixes. Really? Mm -hmm. No. Are you seeing a lot of first-time home buyers priced out of the market as rates have gone up and as the, you know, the, the the price of houses have gone up so much? Are you seeing much of that come across your desk or no? 
That, that's a great question. I think that's applicable to any market. You know, um, when rates moved from you know two and a half percent to three percent, there were people on the borderline at two and a half percent that got priced out. Um, so you know, every increase in rate is is relative. You know, um, ninety days ago we quoted a rate at five and a quarter, and that was considered you know quote unquote too high. Uh, but that same buyer would probably trip over himself or herself to get to that rate today. Um, so, you know, in every market, there are going to be people that are priced out. You know, a, a lot of this is volatile because it's happened in a very short period of time. Um, but, you know, we, we have a combination of factors. You know, we have very low inventory. Uh, we have ve we've had very low historic housing starts uh, for the better part of a decade. Um, and we have a rising interest rate environment. So, uh, you know, it, it, is, it, it feels more common just because a lot of this is happening in a very short period of time. So let, let's go back to you for a second, Lindsay. So sure. what? Um, so what, what? What's the hottest part of the Atlanta market right now, geographically? Is it in town? In would town be my guess. is extremely hot as always. We have an influx coming from New York, California. I'm seeing primarily, and that is making that in town market very strong. There are always going to be people that want to be close to the action, but the suburbs are also hot. Milton uh, is one of the hottest areas. Milton Alpharetta area is one of the hottest areas right now. And I think school drives that a little bit too. Um, but the Atlanta market as a whole is very strong. Yeah, it seems like inside the perimeter, a lot of people that have lived inside the perimeter are going out to the suburbs, but they're getting backfilled, like you say, from people from New York and California. So the whole area is hot. That's yeah. right. And People from New York and California, our prices are extremely appealing to them. And so they want to be in town and they want to be close to all of the wonderful things that the city has to offer. And I think a lot of people during COVID especially kind of rethought their life that lived in town and said, hey, I think I'd like to you know, experience something outside of um, Atlanta. So, so kind of as we get close to the 20 minute mark here, um, Predictions going forward, Lindsay, and then I'll, I'll ask you, Mark. What do you, what do you think a year from now the real estate market in Atlanta looks like? I think it still remains strong. I think that the interest rates at some point do have to soften this craziness that we're experiencing. But I think that inventory is still extremely low, and there's still many buyers out there, and I don't see that changing. Hopefully, the interest rates will calm down and kind of remain where they are, and I think we're still in a great market. Mark, prediction. Thank you, Lindsay. Mark, prediction on interest rates? I think a year in from the now? short term, we'll probably see a little bit of softening. But um, it, if I had to pick in one direction, I, I, I don't see 3%, 4% rates coming back anytime soon. Um, I think you know, a year from now, it is more likely that we'll be in the sixes than that we'll be in the fives. That, that's my prediction. Uh, you know, As long as you know, scarcity creates value as long as there's a continued shortage of housing. If inventory is not plentiful in the market, um, you know, there's still going to be a seller's market. Um, I, I, I'm seeing a little bit more inventory out there than a, a year ago. Um, but, um, you know, as far as interest rates go, I think um, unless the Federal Reserve or some other, you know, governmental factor intervenes, um, the, the market is going to demand a higher interest rate than what we've seen historically. Okay. I got you. Well, thank you guys. And one last disclaimer, you know, to keep my compliance folks happy. 
um, you know, Mark, you in the mortgage business, Lindsay, you in the real estate business, we have no connection with Janie Montgomery. Scott, you have, you guys have your independent practices. So I just have to say that to keep my compliance folks happy. So thank you guys thank for updating you. us on the real estate market, the mortgage market here in Atlanta. And till next time. Thank you. The information provided here is taken from sources which we believe to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of such information is not guaranteed by us. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Employees of Janie Montgomery Scott LLC or its affiliates may at times release written or oral commentary, technical analysis, or trading strategies that differ from the opinions expressed here. Investing may involve market risk, including possible loss of principal. Janie Montgomery Scott LLC, its affiliates, and its employees are not in the business of providing tax, regulatory, accounting, or legal advice. Any tax-related statements are not intended for and cannot be used or relied upon by any such taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding tax penalties. Any such taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor. For more information about Janney, please see Janney's Relationship Summary Form CRS on www.janney.com backslash CRS, which details all material facts about the scope and terms of our relationship with you and any potential conflicts of interest.